The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Wee, wee, wee. Now, I need a theremin. I gotta get a theremin somewhere. Okay, well, well, Don's off searching for a theremin. Tonight's topic is, appropriately enough, since this is our Halloween show for 2017, going to be horror. Uh, a few months back, we talked about horror role-playing games, but now we're going whole hog. We're going down to hell itself. We're talking horror. And who better to take a fun ride to hell with than Paul Ellard Cooley of Shadow Publications, of the Dead Robot Society podcast, and horror author extraordinaire. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you very much. I, I would give my evil laugh, but I'm afraid my throat would probably crack up and I'd end up coughing. So I'm not going to do my because I can't quite do it. Mm. Okay, well, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> thank, thank, th- it's the thought that counts. <laughs> You know, it's supposed to be scary. Well, there we go. That's nice and scary. Mm, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's pretty good. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, start off, uh, since our topic tonight is horror, um, let's start off with well, what is horror? I think we should probably define that first. So, Paul, how would you define horror? Wow. This is, this is a topic of conversation we've had on DRS and multiple panels at multiple cons. Oh boy. Horror is not really a genre. Horror is a a sensation. It is a visceral response to stimuli. It is when a image, a sound, or a thought reverberates around your head, gives you goose pimples, and makes you shrink back. It does something, it touches some core part of us, some part of our reptilian brain that turns on a flight syndrome rather than a fight syndrome. You get the flight response. It's something you want to get away from. It's something that paralyzes you. It's something that shocks you. It's something that sends you quaking in your boots to your mama. Hmm. I'm officially scared. That was a great rendition, sir. Bravo, (laughs) bravo. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's an interesting point. Okay, so you don't consider horror a genre. Would you consider it kind of like almost then a meta genre that actually like covers such a big, it's kind of an umbrella of a whole bunch of different things together then. It's uh, this is probably not putting it quite the right way, but if you consider, if you consider mystery, you consider fantasy, you consider Mm -hmm. science fiction, like space opera and whatnot. Right. If those are foods, then those are the steak, the chicken and the pork. Mm-hmm. Horror would be the spice. It would be what you marinate that meat oh. in. It is it is it is what flavors it? Is what directs the atmosphere of the work? It is mm-hmm. that palpable sense that at any moment this character that hopefully the author or filmmaker has spent a whole lot of time getting you to love mm-hmm. is in imminent danger of getting snuffed out, right? And that you feel it. That's what it is. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. 
Okay, well, Don, what do you think? I think I kind of agree, but kind of don't, but kind of do. <laughs> well, that's very Canadian. <laughs> are, are you going to be at the UN soon? Are you running for a dignitary there? Oh, no, nah, if, you, if you knew me in person, I don't have the charm for that. Well, like I said, it, it's the Tor Johnson thing, that kind of time for negotiate treaty. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but we, we did, um, we talked about, um, horror role-playing games, like tabletop games specifically. And I think since we, we did that, it kind of gives you a cheat to get in because role-playing games rely a lot on vicarious participancy more so than, than any other kind of story. Mm-hmm. And we talked about horror as its own separate thing, and I think you're right that it's a way of uh, it's a way of flavorizing other stories. But I think what's happened is um, over the years we've kind of standardized it into there, there's like I've got uh, eight basic types of horror, but we standardize it into its own thing, and a lot of people come to think of it as its own thing, but. And the part where I would, would agree with you, though, is you're saying it's not necessarily thing unto itself. And I think that that's true. And I think it um, kind of highlights the idea that any kind of academic look, any kind of categorizing stories, it's a good idea from, from uh, an academic point of view. But I don't think it pays creators or the audience to necessarily get totally caught up in the idea. The idea of what? The idea of genre? Yeah, the idea of something specific. And I say that because mm-hmm. uh, when I look at my, my list of types of horror, I've mm-hmm. got very broad ones. But you can see how as soon as you call something a certain type of story, rather than using that as a descriptor for something that people have already produced, people are, are they tend to jump onto that formula as a way to produce that sort of thing and maintain, I'm doing finger quotes here, quality as mm-hmm. opposed to entertainment or just doing something genuinely novel. So you're saying that we don't want to standardize horror or are you just against genres in general? Well, it's, it's, it's like I, I tend, to, I tend to, to be an iconoclast myself, but it's that idea that you can consider it its own thing, mm-hmm. but not to get too caught up in the specifics of that because you will miss out on either creating something that's that's new and different or even as an audience member if it doesn't hit the checklist you're going to be turned off from it even if it really is something new and different and worth like uh, partaking of right well as we both have long established audiences don't really want anything new and different they just want the same old but with a new flavor <laughs> added to it yeah kind of oh god unfortunately <laughs> i i I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, it's uh, the, the way I, I think of it. Maybe it's because I'm coming from the um, maybe it's because I'm coming from the creation background, and that's not mm-hmm. to diminish it. You haven't created anything. That's not to say you haven't. Mm-hmm. When take Lovecraft for instance, Lovecraft. Um, if you take the horror element out, what does he write? Really, what does he write? Uh, really weird science mysteries? fiction. He writes. Oh, yeah. He writes science fiction suspense, and he writes mm. thrillers. That's what mm. he really writes. Mm. The horror element, however, the way he added to it is what got him on the map. Otherwise, no one would even know who he is. Mm-hmm. He would just mm-hmm. be lost in the annals of pulp. 
it is the edge of of a special kind of of horror, his kind of horror that he brought to those tales. Therefore, it 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 kind of follows. I mean, I'm writing a science fiction slash horror uh, series right now, and I'm gonna be, I'm probably gonna keep doing that for a while because it's mm-hmm. fun. I just love it. <laughs> but right. um, the 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 eight different types of horror. I want to hear what these are. What are these? Actually, you've hit. And again, I think um, I think we're agreeing, but coming at it from a different way. Uh, you've mentioned yes. one of the ones I've got on my list is the Lovecraftian stuff. Okay. And I say that because you're absolutely right. He does. They're they're more like a suspense story. Um, there's a sci-fi element to it. He presents it as horror, but he presents it as a specific kind. In that, it's not that the universe is out to get humanity. It's just that we really don't count. <laughs> like like Cthulhu doesn't set out to eat you. It just sort of happens as he's passing through doing whatever it is he's doing. The universe just doesn't care. We're the insects, basically. We're we're nothing. Yeah, and and what happens is he does that, and it creates something new, and we can call something a Lovecraftian horror. And mm-hmm. anybody who's familiar with his work will know what you're talking about, and it becomes sort of a genre, even mm-hmm. though it kind of just starts up as him doing a new twist on something established. And then the problem that you kind of get like I was saying, is once you've defined it like that, people will gravitate towards, I'm going to write a Lovecraftian horror story. (laughs) And what you tend to get when that happens is the same thing over and over because people are too caught up in the specifics of your definition rather than just doing stuff. Gotcha. Because that kind of goes another type of horror that I have. uh, I call it slasher horror. Mm Mm-hmm. And anybody who was alive in the 80s, if you ever saw, like, direct-to-video mm-hmm. movies, you know that mm-hmm. it, it's, yeah, mm-hmm. that's basically, yeah, and it's mutant guy chops up kids in a small thing. And that kind of idea, again, it's, it's you've, you've got this very specific set of rules that define it, and that's cool after the fact, but you have to be careful of getting caught up in that, otherwise you get what we had in the 80s, where every single slasher film eventually was exactly the same with a slightly different mutant. Yeah. Okay. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, the co-host on uh, Dead Robot Society, uh, Terry Mixon, mm-hmm. if you say horror, he only thinks of Jason and Michael Myers. That's all he thinks about. Right. That's all he thinks. He thinks he has personally gotten to the point where he identifies the word horror as those movies. Okay. Mm. And... I think there is some of that going on where you you do have some identification with that. But uh, mm-hmm. as as I'm sure we will discuss later, mm-hmm. um, that is a really simplified way of looking at. <laughs> yes, it, it is. Yeah, yes, it is. Um, no, there, and but again, it's interesting though because Terry is quite a bit older, isn't he? Like, how can, can you give us our age range? You don't have to tell us how old he actually is, but how old is Terry roughly? He's, I think he's fifty two. Oh, he's not that old then. Yeah. Okay. The, the way he talks, I keep thinking he's like in his 60s or something like that. No, he just looks it. <laughs> oh. oh, he's not going to listen to this. I could talk shit about him. Oh, <laughs> Even if he does, it's okay. Um, yeah, because we don't live with him. Exactly. Uh, he looks like freaking Gandalf these days. It's kind of crazy. Huh. Mm. 
oh, okay, no, no, for some, he just, he always talks about himself and refers to himself as being old, so I thought, oh, he must be at least in his 60s or something like that. Oh. No, it, it's just the fact that uh, all the all the hosts, in fact, Justin is younger than I am, so uh, mm-hmm. all the hosts Terry's been with, he's been the old man. Oh, he's the old man of the show. Right, oh, that makes oh. sense, that makes sense. Can I ask roughly how old you are, Paul? I am 46. No. So you're the same age I am then. Yeah, it's pretty Oh, good. you poor bastard. <laughs> yeah. I hope I hope your body's in better shape. No. No, it's not. No. <laughs> <laughs> that um, is very unfortunate. I'm sorry yeah, to hear it. Yeah. Folks, never never become forty six. Just trust us on this one. You yeah. don't want to be us. Shit, never become thirty. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's when it all started to break at thirty. Yeah, that's true. I, apparently, they had the right idea on Logan's run. They, that was a mercy yeah. killing. Yeah, it's a mercy killing. <laughs> <laughs> it just means you got to pack in a lot of experiences in twenty years. Yeah, but they had free sex and drugs, so I think they could manage. Actually, if I remember like right, I, like like I said, you had to pack in a lot of experience in twenty <laughs> years. Yep. And they did. Yes. All right. So, so that's two types of horror then, Don. What are the other six kinds? Uh, the other ones that I had on my list is I mm-hmm. put down, and these are really, like I said, they're kind of vague notions because I'm not mm-hmm. super interested. I'm interested in the genealogy in terms of like study, but not in a broad defining kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got what I called um, existential or personal horror. Mm-hmm. And that was um, that came up in the role playing game episode. That's the idea where you are the monster, okay? And it's it's like the literally say the Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde, or the werewolf thing, or um, to look at films. If you think of a film like M, with mm-hmm. Peter Laurie, where he was like this like axe murderer, like going around killing kids kind of thing, and it was a movie more from his point of view. It's it's that idea of of the personal, the personal horror that you're dealing with kind of inside your own head. You're going mad, basically. Or or not, as the case may be. Yeah. Or sane in a mad world. Yeah, there's there's different takes. I think, um, again, that touches on, like, say, the invasion of the body snatchers idea. Mm-hmm. It touches on that, but that also comes from uh, other types of, okay. of stuff. Like, that's more like there's there's an external threat to that. But the main concern is for your own internal safety. It's for your own mind, your own soul kind of thing. Right. Okay. So, would the thing, the Carpenter version, obviously, would that fall under that category too? It does, and it approaches another um, one actually on my list. <laughs> that's that's a newer one. Is what I've seen called body horror. Oh, yes. visceral, visceral. Yeah. Well, there's there's the uh, the body horror, like the visceral one, is kind of like um, comes for the slasher flick the idea of injury or it's also the idea of like your body rebelling against you. Right. Like I think Mm. the first movie example I can think of that would be like Videodrome. Hmm. Um, how about, no, isn't there that, there was that other one that Carpenter did before then, wasn't there? The one with like the, the worms that made everyone have sex. Oh, shivers. Uh, Shivers. Yeah. Yeah. I think he could. Oh, Oh, say again. I don't think I've ever seen that one. And I, I thought I had seen mostly everything Carpenter done. I have not seen that. Shivers? Oh, it's a messed up movie. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, Imagine my. that. 
Actually, here's and here's a weird thing. You know the whole like scene in Aliens where he like leans over like the egg and the you know the egg and he comes out and he grabs his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was done in Shivers first a couple years before. Like mm-hmm. that's actually a ripoff of a scene in Shivers. Yeah, kind of. Shivers predates it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because Shivers um, Shivers they go mouth to mouth. So people would like kiss you, and this little thing would dig down your throat, and then it would like, Ugh. yeah, it would like mess y'all up, and and it's 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 a it's a really disturbing disturbing movie. <laughs> and yes, well, that is a recommendation. <laughs> all right, yeah. I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> Wait, was that that wasn't Carpenter? That was Cronenberg. Uh, Cronenberg. Cronenberg. Yeah, it's Cronenberg, not okay. Carpenter. Okay. okay. I always get those two mixed up. But yeah, that's David Cronenberg, who, of course, is also Canadian, which is probably why we've seen it, because, you know, Canadian content. Yeah. We have this rule up here that Canadian stuff gets played to death. Yes. You know, they have to play a certain percentage of Canadian content on the air, TV, etc. So a lot of Canadian stuff gets played way more than you'd think. So that's why we, any Canadian content, we've seen it. <laughs> that's just kind of the way it goes. <laughs> What's the Cronenberg for- movie with the with the two brothers who are gynecologists? Oh, Dead Ringers. Yeah, Dead Ringers. Thank you. Yep, that falls into the visceral and also into the psychological category. Yeah, mm-hmm. easily, easily. Yeah, yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, it's it's because I brought up the thing that Carpenter came to mind. Carpenter's a whole other you know kettle of fish. Um, or we can talk Carpenter all night. <laughs> yeah, we can. Oh, yes, we can. Um, I should say pile of guts, not kettle of fish. That would be a better term. Pile of guts. <laughs> um, okay, that's gonna be that's gonna be my next pulp novel. Pile of guts. <laughs> pile of guts by pulp. All equally. There It'll we go. Be awesome. <laughs> and your audience would probably be like, yeah, yeah, it sounds like Paul. Well, my audience would be like, all right, what crazy bullshit is he doing this time? <laughs> is he just trolling us, or is there really going to be sla- – is this really a slasher book? Well, considering that you were the fellow that did – I believe it was called The Street, right? Yeah. And I, I think your I think your audience is well aware that you're going to do anything and everything. Um, from our audience who probably don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> tell us what The Street is, Paul. Oh, boy. Um the street is what happens to Sesame Street after PBS gets canceled. All the puppets are actually alive, and uh, they are left to their own devices. And I like to think of it as a mix between 40s noir and New Jack City, which which was a movie made at the beginning of the crack epidemic. That's pretty much what it is. And Oscar the Grouch plays private detective, and all the stories are told from his point of view. And it's bad. It is bad. It is bad. I should feel shame for writing it, but it gave so many people so much joy in a really warped and twisted way that I just cannot feel bad for it. So, yep. Go check it out, people. The it's, it's it's no longer available. Oh, oh no! Really? You pulled it? Why? It's Why? Pulled it. Uh, I was told that I could get in hot water in certain oh. situations, and so I had to pull it. Oh, okay. Okay, we can, Okay, say no more. Okay, got it. Um, that's not entirely a surprise, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I still have probably like 30 or 40 copies of the, of the paperback hanging out here somewhere. Mm. Well, you, but, can sell, uh, you, you push them at cons, I assume. Uh, I actually just kind of give them away. 
I can't oh, okay. really I can't really sell them, so I just give them away when in certain situations. Right. But yeah, it it definitely will ruin your childhood. If you have fond <laughs> memories of Sesame Street and the Muppets, oh my God, I did, I did terrible, terrible, <laughs> horrible things. I mean, they're, they're, some of the puppets are serial killers. Some of them go crazy. There's they're all snorting dough, which is a new drug Cookie Monster made. It, it's just insane. Puppets being prostitutes. It's just bad news all the way around. Right. So, that sounds awesome. If you do enough Googling, I'm sure you will find somebody with a tour of the uh, the audiobook out there somewhere. <laughs> There's an There's audio book version. I didn't know that. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's what it started out as because uh, I podcast the first story called Stuffing mm-hmm. um, and for an online con. And when I was done, I was like, oh, this is just a lark. I was really pissed off because Mitt Romney was talking about how Big Bird needed to get a job. <laughs> and... Uh, since most of my early memories, especially when I was in Canada, you know, mm-hmm. the only time I saw people of color was on Sesame Street. Yeah, would be. And because I was pretty introverted, um, Sesame Street, The Electric Company, and and shows like that were pretty much what I grew up on. It was the only thing that was really familiar to me that seemed American while I was in Canada. Right. So I have fond memories of that in The Muppet Show, and stuffing was just, I was just being brutal. Because I just had this idea of doing the social commentary on things. And and so I wrote it, and I was like, it's a lark. It all makes people cringe and laugh, and and that'll be that. What happened instead was it got done, and they were like, when's the next street story? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I was like, okay. So I wrote one um, every Christmas for my fans um, that listen to the podcast. I wrote a new one for them. And then it was just kind of like, you know what, guys, if I put a book together and write two more, no- a novelette and a novella for this, will you guys buy the book? And they said, shut up and take my money. So that's right. how that's how it got into a full length experience. Right. <laughs> OK, well, there's one more for your list on puppet horror. Puppet horror. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what happened? You might have you might have hit on a, an actual new kind of horror, <laughs> not not specifically puppet horror. I'm 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 thinking of The Simpsons. Slack monkeys, no. But oh anyway, God. But the 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 idea of um, what the heck mm-hmm. would you call anti nostalgia? The idea anti nostalgia and anthropomorphization, which I can't even pronounce that word. But yeah, anti anti nega. Nega nostalgia. Yeah, that... well, let's use a Lovecraft term and say nega psychic is <laughs> a nega nega nostalgia. There we go. Because mm-hmm. yeah, that's that idea of um, because in the last like say decade or so, we our our childhoods have been mined constantly for for stuff. But that idea of looking back at your childhood and finding it was a flaming pile of poop after all, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm wondering if that would count as a whole new, like, you've inadvertently created a whole new genre. Wow. I don't know. Yeah. I was just doing satire parody and, and lacing it with as much social commentary as I possibly do while making it really hilarious. That was that was my point. <coughs> and funny funny in the sense where you go, oh, dear God, and then you start <laughs> giggling and, and you hate yourself for it. So, yeah, mm. that, that was fun. I'll, I'll have to do that again. I just haven't found the topic and... I could only do that because I loved Sesame Street so much. I was only mm-hmm. able to destroy it that much. But uh, <laughs> right. you know, it, you know, Oscar had his own code, and there were good, there were good puppets and good people there. So it was mm-hmm. just everybody was it was it was Lord of the Flies with puppets. <laughs> yeah. 
That's, yep. uh, the more you talk about it, the better it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and Oscar's also got a very foul mouth. And big <laughs> right, surprise. Big surprise. Uh, Oscar the Grouch, of course he does, yeah. And he's a raging alcoholic, which is just... <laughs> Even funnier, but that, that's a long, <laughs> another story. Uh, remind me, and we'll we'll see if we can hook you up with something. Okay, D- thank you, thank you very much. All right, so um, we should probably continue get back on the, the horror track for a bit. Um, though that was, I I I think we do. It, wow, anti nostalgia horror. I I don't know how to des- even describe it, but okay. So, what are the other kinds of horror you've managed to come up with, Don? Um, one straightforward is I. Like- considered like uh the thriller the suspense story the mystery story okay thriller yeah, suspense yeah, mystery yeah. yeah do you have one uh specific in mind um the the one that i kind of that for for th- it, it kind of bridges the gap because there's possibly a monster in it but that really kind of stuck with me messed me up when i was a kid was uh the original curse of the cat people Oh, Curse of the Cat People. Good Christ. Is that, what was that, 50s? Oh, I was like earlier. I was like 38 or 42. Well, that was okay. the original Cat People. I thought, because yeah. there's, more, there's more than one Cat People movie. Yeah, yeah. The, the other one was made in the 70s or early 80s was Natasha Kinski. And yeah, there was that one. Shit, I can't remember the other name of the B-movie actor. Malcolm the McDowell. Name of, Oh, yeah, but he yeah. played the other cat. I'm talking about the guy who was the quote-unquote protagonist. Oh. Her, her boyfriend. Ah, I can't remember his name. Oh. Uh-oh, somebody's Googling. <laughs> uh. Uh, no. Uh, no. Um, no? Yeah, um, that, uh, yeah that, that's that's interesting. I don't think I've ever seen the original on there. Because the, the, um, the second one is kind of the better film. Right. The- oh, I barely remember it. It was the one, the whole premise of the story is this guy meets this like woman and he falls for her, but she thinks that if she falls in love, she turns into a, like a were cat and will kill him. Mm-hmm. And all throughout the movie, kind of until the very end, you're not exactly sure if she's like a monster or just crazy. Right. So when you get to the end, Kate, 60 year old spoiler alert, she, she's, <laughs> she's just crazy. Like she, she's just crazy. She gets killed. Okay. Curse of in the, the original one. Yeah. Yeah. Curse of the Cat People they made a couple years later, and what it is is the guy gets married and they have a daughter. And she's like, I think she's supposed to be like four or five. Right. And she starts talking about her invisible friend. And mm-hmm. her the mother's like, who is this? Like, what's she talking about? Well, the husband recognizes her invisible friend sounds like this crazy woman she met. Mm-hmm. And you're, again, you're never exactly sure... Is the kid just imagining it? Is it really some? And there's a scene at the end that, as a little mm-hmm. kid, screwed me up. Where she's looking, the, the 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 daughter's looking into the garden. She's saying, "Well, this woman's there. She wants me to come with her." And the family's begging her not to go. And in the end, she doesn't. And it's it's really creepy. And you're never even at the end when she the the kid decides to stay. You're still not a hundred percent sure what happened. And yeah, as a as a little kid, I must have been like two or three when I saw it, and that screwed me up really, really bad. <laughs> well, there's your problem. <laughs> Here, hold my beer. I'm gonna watch Alien when I'm eight years old. I did. Yeah, I yeah, did. I did. Uh, so did I. <laughs> yeah, and I was fine with that because that's just a thing eating people. I can get wrap my head around that. But as a little kid, this idea of this like because as a little kid. 
mm-hmm. you're vaguely aware of imagination and reality are different, but your brain hasn't solidified enough that you can really put a finger on what's what. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why that ending screwed me up, because we had, like, uh, the house we were living in had, like, bay doors going into the backyard, kind of like the ones in the house, and I got afraid to walk into the backyard at night because of that for the longest time. Mm. Okay. Oh, I, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I My similar experience was uh, the movie version of Salem's Lot. Oh. <laughs> and I remember there's the classic scene where the vampire kid's at the window tapping away. Yeah. And I saw, yeah. and for months after that, if I woke up during that, I'd stare at my window when I was a kid, waiting for, waiting or looking for some vampire kid to show up and start tapping on my window. That like freaked me the hell out. Is that the David Soul version? Yeah. I, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Just making sure. It's making like sure. seventy nine or eighty. Because yeah, that messed up all my yeah. friends too. Yeah, that that actually is a really creepy ass scene because the. Uh, the, the way the I can't remember which kid what the kid's name is the way he's he's floating yeah at the yeah, window outside. Yeah. that's what it looks like he's floating of course in the book yeah. they don't float but but uh, it that that's what so, makes it so creepy and because mm-hmm. he's he's there and he's ethereal but he's knocking on the window yeah, tap 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 <laughs> tap 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 I even remember it even to this day tap 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 and it's just it's just that <laughs> tapping at the window and it's just like no that's how much it affected me i'm still remembering this like 30 years later and getting more than 30 years and getting shivers <laughs> just because it's just such a creepy scene we'll put it in the show notes folks i'm sure i can find a clip of it on youtube so 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 that uh, other people can traumatize themselves um so i was actually watching earlier today in preparation for the show i was watching a documentary called nightmares red white and blue mm-hmm. about uh, american horror and they actually um, had, like, they showed a clip from uh, The Cat People. That's why it's fresh in my mind. But they also showed there's another movie that's basically, like, a Cat People-type movie that came out just almost right afterwards. No, there, there were a bunch. Okay, so it was a whole, it was kind of like a spate of these things of, like, you know, cougars in the city or whatever. Like yeah, that, that's, that's if, you, if you go back and you look at the, the films, that's, that's really what it is. You can almost track it decade by decade. Yeah. Right. Uh, what, what the what the trends are? I mean, once The Exorcist came out, what did we have? Mm-hmm. We had a shit ton of religious movie, yeah. uh, religious yeah. horror movies up till probably eighty eight or so, mm-hmm. and uh, then you of course had the slashers that were coming in in the eighties, and that kind of followed into the nineties, and then we got things like Child's Play, and then we got Hellraiser, and we got, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, everything got mishmashed, but it was all about weirding. Uh, you know those parts of the of the experience. I mean, we didn't get another Hellhouse kind of kind of flick for a very long time, not until That's Poltergeist. True. Yeah, so it 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 took a while for things to come you know come full circle, so to speak. Because I, I think the first, if if you really think about it, the first horror stories have got to be considered ghost stories. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, when, when, once you get when, once you get humankind out of their caves, well, hell, maybe even in the caves, they're spooky. <laughs> um, it, it's got to be the fear of what's behind that bush. Yeah, oh, yeah, it's got to be the fear of what what is that sound? What is that that uh, light in the sky mean? What what you know th- those kinds of things that the the things that you can you would consider paranormal or supernatural, mm-hmm. and that's what horror was really first associated with. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd say you're right. I think so. I mean, we have this instinct in us, I think. It's a self-preservation instinct from the time when the world was a much more dangerous place for human beings. 
And I think that, that we have that natural fear in us that, uh, and that's what horror plays on. We have this built in, this, it's again, originally for self preservation, but now it's just kind of, it creates fear, it creates anxiety in us. Um, it's not quite helpful in the modern world because it's kind of overstimulating, overreact, overreacting, but it's, it's the, yeah, that, that sense of self preservation, that fear in us. It's fight or flight, and yeah. it, it, you know, that's why it exists. Is basically, mm-hmm. it's like okay, the rational part of your mind goes away, and the reptile, the the remainder of the reptilian brain that we have says, I can either duke this out because I can't escape, or I can run like hell. Yep. What, what do I do? What do I do? Mm-hmm. And yep. we're herd animals, so really, mm-hmm. we want to run with the herd. Uh, we do, with, and and part of our self preservation is to basically not be alone, which is another reason why isolation is. Ah, it's such a fertile playground. <laughs> I'm sorry, am I drooling? Let me, let, me, let, me, uh, let me wipe that off my fang here. Well, actually, there's a weird aside for a moment, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, as a horror writer, aren't cell phones like the most horrible thing in the world? I mean, oh. I know they almost killed mysteries. <sighs> well, yes, uh, I, and I've, I've found creative ways to deal with that. Um, and... They are difficult. They are they are a serious pain in the ass to deal with, mm. and especially when um, um, what I call or what they call in the films a a bottle a bottle story mm-hmm. is where you take the characters and you're basically you know putting them <clears throat> in a situation where they cannot get out. Right. They're stuck. Um, I did that with the black, and the, actually all three black books were like that. And with mm-hmm. the derelict series, they're out there in space, and there is no one coming to help them. So you know they're more or less trapped in in uh, you know deep ass end of, of space out 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 uh, out past Pluto. Mm-hmm. Those are fun because you can rip away all the layers of of security that communication gives us. Mm. And yeah, it'd be really, really hard to make uh, films like Friday the Thirteenth or, or Halloween without cell phone, or excuse me, with cell phones. Yep. But at the same time, there are ways around it, which is not everybody has got good coverage. Mm-hmm. Phones run out of battery power when they're used as flashlights for long enough. Mm-hmm. People don't always have their shit charged when when uh, when the bad stuff goes down, or a storm can take out a cell tower. Mm-hmm. That's true. But that you just have to kind of plan for. Or people are trapped in a building where the cell phones just don't, just plain don't work. You just have to set that up at the very beginning that here's a constraint. And yep. now we're going to mess with the constraint because these people are going to try and use email. They're going to try and send texts. They're going to try and call. How do you prevent them from doing it? Part of a, part of a writer's job is to say, who are these people? What do they want? Mm-hmm. And how can I keep them from getting it? Yep. Yeah. And actually, you know, if you think about it, um, the modern young people, they are so addicted oh, to their God. cell phones and so attached to them that actually the idea of being unable to use the cell network, not of uh, being cut off, is actually a horror in and of itself. Yep. Mm-hmm. For, oh, for yeah. them, that actually is another level of horror. Have you seen the movie... Um, oh, crap. Now, now I can't remember what it's called. Um, it's about a... Shit. What is this thing called? Uh, Don't worry, you can swear on this podcast. It's okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'll do it anyway. Unfriended. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. 
Okay. It's it's a I guess you could call it a found footage film, uh, mm-hmm. which of course were all the rage and still are. Well, they're super cheap. Yeah, they're super yeah. cheap to make, and you you know if it's done well, you can do some really cool stuff with it. It's mm-hmm. basically about a group of boneheads who um, are stalked by a ghost on social media. Okay. It's pretty creepy. Um, it 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 will give you a little bit of a shiver. There there's some dumb stuff in it, but it, it actually wasn't that bad of a film. I expected it to be much much worse, so it was enjoy- enjoyable. Hmm. Right. But uh, you know that that's the kind of thing. What happens when you get a an unsolicited text message or mm-hmm. uh, a message over Facebook or a, a DM over Twitter or something along those lines, and you don't know who these people are. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's not a spam. It's something that could be taken out of context. Mm. And maybe it's because there is no context can be seen as a completely a threatening sentence. Mm. What does that do to you mentally immediately? It puts up your shields. You um, immediately get that feeling that there's something wrong. Mm. And then, you know, some of us start wondering what we did to piss this person off (laughs) and whether or not they're going to show up at the door. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing. If they have your cell phone number and that, maybe they know where you live. Um, well, uh, considering some of the things I've said on the podcast, I've had people back hack my address. Mm. And in the process, well, it hasn't turned out to be a bad thing. There was the, the one letter I got that was a little creepy, but uh, the, uh, you know, <laughs> my, my patrons have sent me tobacco. They've sent me <laughs> alcohol. They have sent me steins from germany they have some you 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 name it they've sent it to me wow that's cool but but the thing is anybody's address in this day and age uh can be back hacked anybody's telephone number can be back hacked so Mm -hmm. you really don't have a sense of privacy anymore yep that's true yeah yeah (laughs) and so that's so in that with going back to because you don't have that sense of privacy that yeah you're you're vulnerable, and so that's why it's really easy to throw people off, especially young people in a modern setting. Yeah, with uh, if they start receiving unwanted attention through the through their phones or other things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, can you imagine what would happen if John Wayne Gacy was was running around in this day and age? I'd rather not. <laughs> I mean, seriously, if you if you took a if you took a serial killer uh, type mm-hmm. like that, or Son of Sam, or whomever. Right, and it, it, you know, imagine Jeffrey Dahmer getting his victims through Grinder. I mean, come on. Yep, the oh. stories write themselves. You just basically <laughs> take something from real life and put it in in modern times, and it's easy to see where it would go. Oh yeah. Well, they've had oh, that. No, it's they've had mm-hmm. that happen. That they've had people that would would stalk somebody on on yes. different and kill them and. A common yes. a common thing is crooks will wait till you you publish. We're leaving on vacation tomorrow, thirty right. weeks in Florida, yeah, and then they rob your house. <laughs> Correct, yeah. and that that stuff happens. I was actually when I first started my podcast was going to create something called Fiend Feed, mm-hmm. and what was going to be is all the fiends uh, tales <clears throat> I was writing at the time, and those were all like first person told from the the point of view of the serial killer or monster or whatever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to create stalking maps for them. Mm-hmm. And I was in love with the idea, and then one day I realized, wait a minute, this could actually be used as an idea for some, never mind, I'm not doing this. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to do this. But, you know, the, the concept was really, really, uh, uh, the reason why it stuck in my head is because I could, I could see it being done so easily. 
Mm-hmm. And in this day and age, that is, that is one of those things that, that kind of terrifies me is that uh, uh, it's very, very difficult to tell if that person at the door is going to be one of the crazy tribe. Mm-hmm. Right. So, don't know. You never know what's going to happen. Well, that's yeah. that's part of the fun. Well, sometimes, you know, if the guy looks like Tor Johnson's wearing a spike cod piece, you kind of know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying. We've all had which that. Part, I know which part of the anatomy my bulldog is going to go after. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so did we cover all your types of horror, Don? Uh, there's three left. Okay, what are the three? Well, again, I think you guys um, kind of were hitting at one of the things that I I um, I put on the list, and this is, again, where I don't remember this is just kind of academic. It's not, you know, writer's guide or nothing. But you were talking about the... Um, the the very first horror stories were ghost stories and it was always right. re- relating to what's just outside the light of the fire kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to that end, I say some of the, um, the earliest ho- stories that we could call horror stories, which were written to purposely scare people as, as to keep them lying and teach them stuff would be things like fables or folk tales or fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, especially some of those fairy tales, the original versions were pretty brutal. Yep. The original Grimm's fairy tale. Well, if, if you think about it, vampires are nothing more than a cautionary tale for women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah the, original, the original vampire tales, if you, if you don't you know, believe all the, all the legend and lore, but if you study the legend and lore, you, you really realize that really that's about uh, mm-hmm. you know, women taking care of themselves and not trusting strangers and you know, sticking with the family and kind of doing what the family says. These are all cautionary tales um, that were kind of passed down for those reasons. And the Grimm's fairy tales are very much the same. Mm-hmm. They do not have happy endings. The witch <laughs> doesn't get killed by the by the, the huntsman or whatever else. Nah, man, all the pretty people die. That's how that works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fairy tales were in in some ways they are horror stories. Actually, a bunch of them are horror stories. Sure. Yeah. And and remember too that you're if you're you're when you think like like we tend to think of the Grimm's Tales net, that's mm-hmm. kind of like a European thing. If you look at say um, like Eastern European, some of like the Russian folklore, uh, some a lot of the Asian folklore, it it is it's exactly like you were saying. They're these little moral lessons wrapped up in a story you tell the kids that teaches them make sure you listen to mom and dad, don't talk to strangers, don't wander off into the woods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's 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 what they're there for. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because the the stories teach um, better are better lessons. Well, the stories will stick with you when mom and dad say don't do that. That's not going to stick yep. with you. Yeah. Oh no. So I mean, we we are we are essentially the uh, the product of narrative, and we start we start yeah, thinking yeah. in narrative when we're three or four years old. When we start playing with with uh, well. When my generation was playing with G.I. Joes and, and Hot Wheels cars and shit like that, and we were, you know, making up stories or Legos, we were beginning the narrative process right there at the beginning. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Well, human beings are built for narrative. We're built to remember stories because it's a survival mechanism, right? Because basically what you're doing is you're crowdsourcing knowledge and you're crowdsourcing information. You're learning that, you know, that caveman Sam was almost killed by a saber-toothed tiger, but he threw, t- he threw dirt in the tiger's eyes and he escaped. Well, if you encounter a saber-toothed tiger now, you'll know throw dirt in its eyes and you can run away. Yep. I mean, 
that's a survival mechanism. I mean, the people who learn from stories are the ones who survived, and the ones who didn't, <laughs> didn't. <laughs> the ones who didn't were the ones that uh, came out the other end. <laughs> that's exactly right, yeah. And, that's, and so we're literally wired for story. We're wired to remember stories. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I'm a teacher at a local community college. And one of the things I tell my business students, we're doing practice for interviewers, for you know, job interviews. And I always tell them, if you want to be remembered, tell them a story. Mm-hmm. Because if you, tell, if you tell your future employer a story, they will remember you. If you can tell them some personal story that's connected and links you with the job in some way and sets you up, that will get remembered. The people who sit there and talk about all their accomplishments, they will never be remembered. It's, mm. it's storytelling. That's what gets you in. Yeah. Because we're, we're wired for story. That's just the way humans are. Yeah. And that's awesome. Yep. Sort of. Well, it, also means, it also means we find patterns and stories yes. where there aren't really any. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we try to make, we're pattern making machines. So we try to create stories and that's where we get like conspiracy theories and we get all sorts of stupid, crazy crap. And literary because, critics. Yeah, well, that, them too. Yeah, them too. Who find meanings in every single word of a of writing that may or may not originally have been meant to be there. Yeah. Let me tell you one of the, one of the, probably one of the greatest courses I ever took in college was, uh, uh, mm-hmm. was literary criticism because what we had to do was we studied, uh, 10 different schools of literary criticism. Mm-hmm. And then we read Frankenstein and we had to pick four schools of literary criticism to d- dissect, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with. Right. Mm-hmm. So I chose the the feminist, the communist, the oh god, what was it? the naturalist, and God, I can't remember the fourth one. Oh, I I can't remember. Anyway, the uh, the point of it was to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who believed in that school, mm-hmm. and what you found is that if you want to lie your freaking ass off, it is not <laughs> real hard. And it is yeah. not real difficult to come up with the craziest propagandist bullshit from mm-hmm. from uh, a length of text. It is just too damned easy. And people do not really sit there and think about just how easy it is to to, uh, you know, isolate something and then make it the focus and then try and make it fit throughout the rest of the narrative and that you can actually do it, mm-hmm. logically do it. It's scary. Really scary. Yeah. yeah. What? That's how, like Rob was saying, you get conspiracy theories. And I got to say, yeah. now nowadays, what I find horrifying is it's tough to come up with any kind of nerdly entertainment <laughs> that keeps you ahead of the curve of some of the things that people really believe. Have you seen all the trouble South Park's been having since Trump got elected? I rest my yeah. freaking case. Well, there's my, my current favorite conspiracy that I just heard about last week. Was was uh, how uh, John Benet Ramsey didn't actually die? Have you heard this one? Uh, no. Oh God. H- have you heard it? No, I have not heard this. What? What? Is she Melania Trump? No. What happened was. <laughs> <laughs> no. This. Oh, this is better. She was kidnapped by the Illuminati, who raised her in their secret Illuminati ways. And what? W- yep. This is what happened, and they used because of her like natural charisma that they turned her into like um, a performer who had spread Illuminati values through their, their products. And that's who Katy Perry is. What? 
Yeah, and 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 that's that would make an awesome movie. And I'm like, I, I couldn't come up with that. Like seriously, that that I never would have put those ideas together like that. It's, oh my it's god, the Manchurian Candidate. Somebody just ripped off the Manchurian Candidate plot and gave it a twist. Yeah, but with like a touch of lizard people and breasts. I mean, like holy smokes. <laughs> They live now with more breasts. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what it is. I'm like, oh man, that's that is wow. That is just okay. <clears throat> yeah, but how do you compete? Uh, you have to be weirder than the next person. <laughs> <laughs> Which I used to think I was until you well, know, the last you know, few years. You know, here's the thing. It's like um, I, I know all these writers who I think are just, you know, amazingly imaginative, fantastic people. And, and I read some mm-hmm. of their books and I'm like, man, I could never come up with something like that. And mm-hmm. then I'll meet them at cons. They'll be like, man, I can't believe you came up with that, blah, blah, blah. And that was really cool. And it's like uh, I just ripped off the following four things <laughs> to make that story now I'm beginning to think you ripped off four or five things from other stories. And now I think about it, you know what? You're just as big as fraud as I am. <laughs> Someone once said that writers are some of the greatest thieves alive. Oh, yeah. If, if you're not stealing, you ain't doing it right. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the adage is good writers borrow, great writers steal. Oh, yeah. There we go. What? That, yep. that was a Simpsons episode. Uh, probably they've ripped off everything else. So, uh, when, when you say stuff like that, and we're, since we're talking about horror, when I think of the Simpsons, I just remember, uh, Christopher Walken reading uh, good night moon. Oh, yeah. oh, it was freaking creepy. Oh my God. Oh, oh. go find that clip on YouTube folks. Show that one to your kids. We'll put it in the show notes. Was that, was that the one with the scooching? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, kid, where you going? Scoot <laughs> <Get you> over. <laughs> I think it was also I had Stephen King reading something. I can't remember what it was. He oh, was just yeah. wackadoo. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> Th- theft is what we do, man. Th- theft is what mm. filmmakers do. Theft is what writers do. Theft is what artists do. There's... There's only so much things or only so many things that can quote unquote be new. And since we've been around telling mm-hmm. stories and, and shit, the, uh, you know, Gilgamesh was, was, Ooh, it's, it's what, what almost, uh, 1500 years long or earlier than the Bible, something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's the like oldest that. story that we know of. And you look at that. Well, Jesus Christ, man, Tolkien, Star Wars, mm-hmm. you name it has been, was all ripped off from Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Bible is ripped off from Gilgamesh. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, guys, because it's already been done, and, and those people are long, long, long dead. All we're doing is <laughs> rewriting the same stories and putting different features together. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Aristotle was complaining back in 3rd century BC <laughs> about how it had all been done in his book Poetics and yeah. basically saying, yeah, here are the standard stories. Here's what we always see. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ruin entertainment for you for the rest of your life. Um, and, 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 you know, Joseph Campbell kind of, if, if you go look at the, uh, the hero's journey by him, mm-hmm. he did sort of the same thing. But mm-hmm. uh, his idea was more of putting it with a uh, uh, Jungian collective consciousness. Right. Yeah. And I like to think of it more in, in that realm. I think there there's all these 
if, if you if you bring it back to horror, there's all these things that we have running around mm-hmm. in our heads. We have ancestral memories, of spiders that kill us, snakes that kill us, uh, yeah. animals that kill us. Everything was out to kill us. Mm-hmm. And so when we see those things, even if they're, they're species that are not poisonous, are not hazardous, are not dangerous, part of mm-hmm. us still recoils. And it, it's all because of ancestral memory. It has absolutely nothing to do with with the fact that I know that's a spider. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just something about that that uh, um, gets into some people's heads. And so obviously some people are okay with it and some people are absolutely freaking terrified. Those mm-hmm. who are arachnophobic. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm personally clownophobic, but that's, you know, horophobic, yeah. I think is what it's called. Yeah, that's that's not a phobia. That's just good sense. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're, you're supposed, clowns are obviously dangerous. That's why they look the way they do. Oh man, when I wrote the story mimes, it, it somebody oh. was like, "Oh god, you you wrote a horror story about mimes, isn't that redundant?" Or <laughs> 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 El Marceau is coming out with a with a machete to hack the audience to death and nobody's surprised. <laughs> well, see cuz mimes are horrible and creepy too cuz we had a, one of the games I ran years ago, the bad guys had androids that they disguised as buskers and these things would come into important areas and then they detonate and they were using landmines. They can't all be winners. Okay. Can you, can you, can you mute him? (laughs) Uh, He's uh, tried. Turn him into a mine, please. Yeah. Don, you're going to be acting out the rest of this podcast episode. Did you, did you sign language, sir? Yeah, it's going to work really well since none of us have video at the moment. <laughs> That's exactly true. That's why we're all still sane. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right, so so that's the end of your horror list, right, Don? Two more. Two more? Oh, there's two more to wow, go. Okay, we're never going these. We keep going on tangents. Sorry. <laughs> no, actually. No, no, it's okay. It's totally okay. This I, is actually fun. You guys keep bringing up stuff that leads to the, the next one. Okay. Because we're talented. Yeah, because... <laughs> Because we were talking about fables, and you'd specifically mentioned uh, vampires, how vampires were mm-hmm. warning against, like, the, the charming stranger. Mm. Out of that, I think, especially getting to, like, say, the 1800s, that you got what I've seen referred to as gothic romance. Okay. Which would be Dracula. Mm-hmm. It's a monster story. It's kind of an existential monster story. But there's a certain humanity caught up in it. Well, that's true. Actually, again, going back to that uh, Nightmares Red, White, and Blue movie, they actually talked about that in the movie where they said that when the movie, when uh, Bela Lugosi's Dracula was first released, it was actually pitched to the audience as a romance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they didn't want to call it a horror movie. Yeah, it was sold. It was actually, so if you think about it, it's actually Twilight 1.0. Yeah. Yeah, you can say the same thing about uh, Boris Karloff's The Mummy. Yeah, that's true. yeah, it is. It is really a love story. You're just on the on the on the outside of it, mm-hmm. watching true. it unfold and being completely creeped out about what it's doing. But really, it is a love story. And even the the Mummy movies with Brendan Fraser, the first two, we won't talk about the third. Um, <laughs> the first two were awesome. I loved them. They're so yep. good. Cheese popcorn. All oh, their just fantastic um but uh that 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 is there too i mean the 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 love interest Mm -hmm. the love part the the fact that somebody would come back from the dead 
you know, to mm-hmm. be with their loved one it is mm-hmm. is something that's very, very palpable and very, very understandable for anyone who's who's lost someone and, and, and stood at their graveside. And, and there's always that thought. Mm-hmm. Can, can mm-hmm. I have that person back, please? Right. Yeah. Because because that goes, uh, I think it was in Russia. You go back to mm-hmm. like the 15, 16, 1700s. There was uh, the a folk tale that if you did grieve for, say, your lost spouse for too long, I forget mm-hmm. the name of it. I can't pronounce it anyway. But it was like a type of demon that would come to you in their form. And it would use like your sense of loss to bewitch you, which is kind of the moral get get over it kind of thing. But that idea like that, it's it's it goes way, way, way back. And it's something that doesn't come up so much anymore. You got a lot of like um, the horror novels. If you go back to like, say, the 1800s tended to be either really visceral or they were these weird semi-lyrical like i say that we we call them emo nowadays <laughs> but well it's it's true basically but it was that idea it was this idea of these like weird lost loves and the lovers that couldn't be together not because like their families were at war but because one of them was like an extra-dimensional hell beast or something <laughs> Oh, so, so you've met my uh, ex-girlfriend. <laughs> Good night, folks. <laughs> Not my wife, my ex-girlfriend. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, yeah, there, there, there is a certain element of, of that that goes on. It, all these things are so interlinked with the culture at the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, then, then the, the successive or the, the social evolution, we drag that baggage with us. And it changes, it morphs, but you can still see the kernel, the nugget of where it came from. Just as as with every legend, you can find that that nugget of truth there, that, which kept getting elaborated and elaborated and elaborated on over time, until it's something almost unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. And we keep doing this. We keep grabbing these these old ideas and uh, these old fears, and basically repackaging them. Mm. And that's essentially uh, you know, what we do in in, uh, in cinema in a big way. I mean, the the, the idea that somebody's watching your every move, um, you know, that that feeds into Big Brother, <clears throat> that feeds into Minority Report, that feeds into, you know, mm-hmm. the, the the movies where you're stalked by a ghost or whatever else. It, mm-hmm. It's the sense that you you cannot find isolation, and then of course the other side is all you have is isolation. Right. Yeah. And and both extremes are bad. Is basically what it comes down to in, in our uh, in in our way of being human. But the the gothic stories, mm-hmm. there's one you should really check out. I don't know if it, if it would be uh, classified as gothic, but uh, the story that in, the, the the series of stories that really influenced H.P. Lovecraft. Um, it's called. Damn it! I had the name. God, I keep doing this. I've been pushing it for a while. It's uh um oh the the crim uh, is it the Crimson King? Oh, the Yellow King. Yellow King, thank you. The Yellow yeah. King, yes, yes, <clears throat> the Yellow King. If you haven't read that that book of all those stories, there's really I think three of them that are the top. Mm, um, right. You know, one of them does have to deal with with loss, but man, that first one, holy crap! It is insanity <laughs> incarnate. <laughs> I mean, just wow. So uh, you, you can go back and you can see what they were doing, which is basically uh, what that author was doing, was taking mm-hmm. all these different ideas of how society would change 
and what that effect would be on people mm-hmm. when you dissect it long enough. I mean, yeah. he's talking about them putting in suicide booths in the street, and this is like 1911 <laughs> when he wrote this. So I mean, it's just wow. It, it's it's just crazy stuff. But we have we we have those things that kind of follow us around. And if you dig back far enough, you can see where they where they came from, or at least you'll have a point of what you think is the origin until you start digging deeper. Mm. And then it's just this this well you fall down. If you do enough ancient history study, man, the the <laughs> you you fall down the hole and it's really deep. Mm. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Now that I've completely gotten this off the topic. What was the topic again? <laughs> no, that was actually. No, you yep. actually just filled out Don's topic. That's actually perfect. Yay. And yeah, no, no, no. You were, you were definitely the right person to have on this show, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I've never heard that before. This is cool. I'll have, to, I'll have to put that in my biography. Somebody finally said I was perfect for a show. Too bad I wasn't. I'm not a permanent member of it. Well, you're you're always welcome to come back, sir. You've all you've definitely earned it. Aww, you're too kind. But you're too. Kind. But this is a horror podcast, not a love fest. So, Don, what's your what, what's your last kind of horror? The last one, and it's interesting because once again, that kind of leads into it. Okay, is what nowadays you see referred to as urban horror, mm-hmm. which is kind of it's horror, but not. Does it involve skunks and raccoons? No, no, it's, it's, well, it could, depending if you're doing a weird lycanthrope story. <laughs> a were skunk would a be horrifying. A skunk, oh my god. <laughs> I had that same thought before you said it. Holy <laughs> shit, I gotta write that story now. I have a got to write that story of a were skunk. I, I've never, oh my god, I've never seen that. <laughs> you're gonna hang out with his buddies, the were squirrel and the were armadillo. It'll be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just got a great idea for a Twilight parody. Oh, oh Lord no. Almighty! Oh no! Oh yeah. So anyway, <laughs> um, urban. Okay, let's let's get back. Urban horror. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, my brain is not quite processing these statements. What do you mean by that? Uh, like I say, these are just kind of catchphrases I've been using to separate. Urban horror is what you get. Like you said, you mentioned Twilight. Um, you talk mm-hmm. Blade, you talk about, uh, the, was it the Dresden Files? That's uh, urban fantasy. It is, and what's happened is you, 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 you've got this story where they'll take, like, the urban fantasy, they take the trappings of fantasy and make them mundane. It's the same thing with, with the urban horror idea. You take something like a vampire or a werewolf or a ghost, things that we considered supernatural, that were, were implements of horror, and you make them mundane. And it's it's the idea that we had the big spade after Twilight took off of like vampire stories where basically they weren't monsters. They sat around whining about their girlfriends all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the emo vampire. <laughs> well, yeah, kind, emo of, kind of. And, and you could say that comes from like the gothic romances, like the Draculas, the Carmelas, those kind of stories from like the 1800s. But mm. what what makes the current it, it, it version different was that Dracula was still a supernatural entity, even though he fit into our world. He was like a like a parasite living within it. He wasn't of it. Whereas something like Twilight, you've got okay, you're a vampire mm. that goes to school because 
I guess. And your veg, yeah, your your vegetarian. And I'm on, I'm, I'm on the hunt for my next fourteen year old. Gee, thanks for giving us yeah. that idea, guys. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm hunting for teenage girls. You know, even though I'm over a hundred years old. Yeah, there, yeah okay. there's just something completely and totally wrong with that. That that's why I just I can't read those books. Besides the fact yeah. that writing is shitty, but uh, yeah, that, no, thank you. See, that was <laughs> that that was the only part of it that I can't say I'm okay with. But I I thought was was okay because it's creepy and these are monsters and they're supposed to be creepy and vampires. Um, to 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 quote Sam Vines from the Discworld books, vampires are perfectly fine right up till the point they aren't. Like, <laughs> you, you say the same thing about politicians. <laughs> politicians, vampires, eh? Eh, politicians, yeah. vampires, CEOs, yeah, it's all the same. All the same thing, yeah. Yeah, and but but that was the idea that they took what's supposed to be a figure of fear and menace, or or at best is supposed to be the other that it's it's not human anymore. It's it's you might be able to interact with it, but you'll never fully understand it. And they sort of drag it down to our level, I guess is the word that I'm still thinking. Twilight. That's mm-hmm. basically what they do. So it's mm-hmm. it's no longer right. a tool of fear. It's basically. It's it just like an odd guy, but at that point, it's no longer really horror, is it? It it is, and this is again like I I say it's it 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 pays to not get too wrapped up around the axle because you've taken one of these uh, tools of horror, one of these things that we oh, would, tropes. yeah, the tropes and that something that we would inject into a story to give it that supernatural edge. And you've taken that thing and removed the supernatural from it in a way. Yeah. But in the process, you've completely defanged it from being able to even make you feel icky. Yep. And that's what the, 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 the urban horror thing is. You've basically come up with a weird superhero story. Yeah. That's urban fantasy. That's urban fantasy. That's yeah, Buffy or... the Vampire Slayer. That's that's Dresden, as you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's still ways... so basically the, the the hero people are just as screwed up as what they're fighting. I think is really what you're coming down to. Only there are some things out there that even scare the shit out of them. Well, that's how I think it it started when you go to the '80s. But I think we've gotten to the point where those things just aren't really scary. Like like I say, they're they're odd. Mm. But they're not they're not supernatural. We've we've taken we've taken like the divine and the demonic and made it mundane. Like again, if if you go by Twilight, like I mm. had friends who were huge fans, so I know more of the story than anyone ever should. You get the problem that like, okay, so dad finds out she's dating a vampire and he's like cool with it and he doesn't <laughs> even have to like like use mind powers on him or nothing. It's just, oh, you're a vampire. Uh, that's like um I don't know. It's like being from South America or something, isn't it? I guess you know <laughs> we're we're all woke here, and it's and and it's and that's why I say everybody makes you know notes the fact he's like a hundred years old. And he's hitting on this teenage chick. No, to me that was the only part of the story that made sense because that's creepy, and he's supposed to he's he's a monster. He's a supernatural thing. He's not like us. His the world doesn't work for him the way it does for us. He lives forever. That messes with your perception of time he was like young when he got turned into this eternal thing so he's perpetually like a 19 year old and that does weird things to you 
that's a valid point. He is a perpetual teenager. Okay? <clears throat> but but again, it's it's you've 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 taken all of that, mm-hmm. and you filed off a lot of the the really weird stuff, and and as part of that, a lot of the weird consequence. And that's why when you had all of these like Twilight ripoffs, they were just basically vampires are your neighbors. Well, oh, okay, I I guess. And more and more, they gloss over that idea of it's a vampire. Um, to go with mm. with uh, with uh, with with Paul's idea, if you go to the eighties, there was a TV show called Nick Knight, and he, yes. he was a va- he was a vampire cop, and I hated it because they kind of took away. They said, "Well, he'd go." I forget it was like he'd go to the blood bank or something. And that's how he'd feed. Mm-hmm. But that takes the horror out of the vampire when you do that. And I think, again, that you had Anne Rice at that time where they were still monsters, but you were getting more into their head. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. as that progressed, like, we get to the point that, yeah, like I say now, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, stories, like a lot of novel series come out now that mm-hmm. follow this idea that you've taken the supernatural and made it mundane. Right. And okay. and I think I think that constitutes a whole other thing. And and like you say, it's not really horror. It's where horror jumps that line, but it follows that genealogy, and that's why I put that kind of as the capper to the list. Okay, well, you can so see. it's horror that's jumped the shark. Okay. Well, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, when, when I think about urban fantasy, there are, there are some good urban fantasies out there that do have a really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, feel for horror even though you were you were essentially dealing with a monster as the protagonist right mm-hmm. so i mean there, there's a lot of different things you can do there the says the guy who's basically going to start writing urban fantasy probably next year um mm-hmm. there are a lot of different things you can do to even though certain part aspects of of the world may be mundane even though they're supernatural or paranormal there is that entire other level where you can bring in the baddies, the, the Lovecraftian uh, stuff, and make the world weird, make it sort of unrecognizable. There was a in the role playing game uh, Werewolf, they would travel to I can't remember what they called it now. It was like the it was like they would they would shift out of this reality and then go into this other reality where the world looked completely different. So for instance, if I'm around a, a school where there's all this happy people and, and uh, the trees are, are great and wonderful. When I flip over there, it's full of color. Um, it looks very inviting. Whereas if I go to a chemical dump or a waste dump or something like that, that's where the monsters live mm-hmm. in this oh. other reality. Well, I can't the, umbra. the Umbra. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I knew Don would know it. Yeah, there you go, the Umbra. So, I mean, that idea of 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 being trapped into an existence where you're constantly flipping back and forth between those two realms, and uh, Dresden mm-hmm. does that with the Fae. It uh, it it, it weirds perception, and that's another part that creeps us out. Is when you take something that you should recognize, and mm-hmm. you just skew it enough, like for instance. If you see a person walking towards you and their arms are too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That... Oh, you've been to Windsor. <laughs> <laughs> I thought y'all just had these humongous heads that could barely keep up on your necks. Um... 
with our flapping <laughs> heads and beady eyes. There you go. There you go. It's the beady <laughs> eyes that do it. But, but but when you see when you see humans out of proportion, it does mm. something. It looks odd, and it <clears> looks odd yeah. and not a wow. That's funny looking. It looks odd and oh my god, what is that? Mm-hmm. And, and and it's another reason why you know folks who had physical deformities way back in the day were were sometimes put to death. Yeah. Um, for that very yeah. reason, because oh, it's this it's the child of a demon or whatever else. No, you dumbass. It's called a birth defect. But mm-hmm. it's simple stuff like that where um, the the mundane gets weirded, for lack of a better term, and then you can really scare the hell out of people. And just the idea of somebody seeing a face. Where there are no eyes, mm-hmm. it's it's the fact that it, it plays on our expectations of what is real, and then dices them to pieces by just adding one detail that just does right. not make any sense to our brains. Hmm. Yep, I remember when I was a kid. Actually, the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Oh. I don't know if you remember, there was an ad for that movie where it's Freddy walking in the... You can just see his silhouette. He's walking down an alley and his arms are yes. stretched up. The arms keep getting longer. Yes. Mm. And as a kid, or well, young person, whatever, at that point, it freaked me the hell out. Yeah. It, like, it, you really didn't know what the hell you were looking at. And just those extra weird long arms. It's just like, ugh. Yeah, and, and that's uh, yeah. That, that's that's where you where I actually that was where that that jumped into my into my thoughts. But um, yeah. there's also <laughs> I have a plan. I have, there, there's a scene for the black one of the last uh, last black books that I'll uh, I will definitely put in there. But um, that will have some shades of that. But ba- basically, imagine you're walking toward you know a person talking to them, and they're in mm-hmm. the shadows. And then the closer you get, the weirder the shadow looks. Mm, right. Suddenly, it no longer looks human. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, well, that's even great. if it's just a trick of the light, even if it's just a trick of the light, yeah. um, or maybe a stray ray of of light strikes you know something on mm-hmm. them and just gives you a brief glimmer of the eyes. It it th- those little things can really send you into a spin, and yeah. you know part of what I do is, and it's not really conscious but part of what i do is i take those little pieces and i just make them bizarre and that's why you get the fun that's why you get folks who are having to turn the page and at the same time terrified to turn the page you know that that's that's the whole point of doing that and i bring that to my science fiction i bring that to my fantasy i bring that to to more or less anything i write even if it's not considered "quote unquote" horror, the bottom line is I'm there to give you a sense of the uncanny because that's that's mm. the kind of those are the kind of books that I write. Mm. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Actually, and I think that's an excellent segue. So why don't we actually start talking about your books, Paul? I mean, we've already talked about the um, about the street, but why don't we start going into a little bit of your background? So where did you start as a writer? Oh boy. Uh... Please give me more context than that. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. What was the first book that you wrote, Paul? Uh, the first full-length book that I wrote has never seen the light of day. Actually, the, okay, the, that... the first three uh, have never seen the light of day. <laughs> hmm. 
And that's just because, you know, they were just, you know, uh, was it, uh, what's this or not shelf novel? Trunk There's novel. another term trunk for Trunk novel. Yeah, trunk novels. There we go. They're just your trunk novels, are they? Yeah, they're, they're trunk novels. They, they've been read by probably fewer than 20 people, thankfully. Huh. Um, right. I wrote, um, what was I doing? I guess I was writing urban fantasy back in, oof, that would have been 90, 91. Um, mm. And also was writing it in high school, and then I, I wrote some literary fiction that was still too, too, too spec fic um, right. in in the mid nineties, and basically all those all those efforts were were fails in the in the best sense of the word because I I basically learned a lot from them. But the first mm, full length right. novel I wrote when I came back to writing was uh, Closet Treats. Oh. Okay. Is Closet Treats a novel? I've heard you mention it on the Dead Robot Society podcast, but I always assumed it was probably an anthology. No, that one, that one's an actual novel. Okay. So what's Closet Treats about? Um, it is about a, um, a psychotic, if mm-hmm. the di- not, not a psychopath, a psychotic. You know the difference? Mm-hmm. Okay. You better define it for our audience. Okay, psychopath goes out and kills people because they're delusional. Psychotic mm-hmm. is just delusional. Right, and that that means that they can see things that aren't there. That means they can be under the reality can switch for them. Right, right. So anyway, mm-hmm. it's a psychotic who sees an ice cream truck uh, drive down his neighborhood. That uh, mm-hmm. is the the windows are all blacked out, and what he sees driving is a demon. Right, and he doesn't know if it's real. Right. Hmm. And uh, so it's a psychological horror book, and it gets mm-hmm. pretty bad. <laughs> but uh, it, it's a fun place to play, and I did lots of horrible things to that character, whom I loved very much. And it was—it's actually based on a real incident, which is a—I uh, was working on a, a book I still haven't managed to finish called "The Day the Town Died," and um, mm-hmm. uh, I heard the ice cream truck you know do your balls hang low do they wobble to and fro you know going on and so <laughs> yeah, yeah and so I, I open up the door and here's this white econoline van that's been uh you know tricked out and whatever to be an ice cream truck mm-hmm. but all the windows were tinted right it was creepy as freaking hell <laughs> and right. i was just like what in the fuck is this shit so i wrote an essay about it and put it up on uh shadowpublications.com my podcast and then people were like, when are you writing this story? <laughs> I was like, there's no story here. There's no story here. Six months later, I finished the damn book. <laughs> right. So um, so actually, so you've been writing short stories by this point for a little while for your podcast. And yeah, I was writing uh, uh, The Fiend's Tales. Um, and then, and right, then okay. I wrote uh, the novella Tattoo, which is what really got my podcast to be popular. Okay, what was Tattoo about? Tattoo is about a reporter who follows up on a series of murders that involve uh, tattoos being flayed off of uh, the bodies. Oh, lovely. And what he comes to discover is there is a very, very, very deranged person who is uh, committing mm-hmm. these crimes. But it's also I, – I guess it's, a, it's really a, 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 a conversation about what identity is, how you identify yourself. And what you use to identify yourself, and what happens when you lose your identity, right? So, um, but it w- it was pretty popular back in the day. I still I, I still get asked when I'm going to write a sequel to it. So, 
Oh, very cool. No, I was wondering, because a lot of your single name ones I've noticed usually tend to be connected with your Garaga's children's saga in one form or another. <laughs> so I was wondering if it was part of that. Uh, wow, things are going to get really crazy here. Um, all right, so in Tattoo, there's a character named Jackson who's the main the, the protagonist. He talks to a buddy of his who's a cop named Dewhurst. Right. Dewhurst is in Closet Treats. He's in he's in Tattoo. Tony Downs right. has two of his own stories that are out there. He's also in uh, in in Tattoo and Closet Treats. <clears throat> right. Well, all three of those characters are also in Gare's Inferno, which we're releasing next month. Right, so they are all in the same setting as your Garaga's children's saga thing. Yes, they are. And when I write the first uh, Tony Downs novel, hopefully next year, which will be the kickoff for the Urban Fantasy series, then you'll see how it all kind of ties together. How all that ties together. All right, so you better tell our audience about Garaga's children as well. (laughs) I I know this because you talk about the Dead Robot Society podcast, but Don and the rest of our audience have no idea what we're talking about. Okay, so... Wow, where do I begin? Well, let's begin with the beginning. Uh, you, I know you've heard this story because I'm, I'm sure I've related on DRS. But I was walking the dog one yep. night, listening to Pseudopod, and the story was that they were playing. And Pseudopod is a horror podcast. It's out there. They do short yeah. stories every week. A very good one. Let's go check them out. That story was not captivating me. So I was walking the dog. I was on my way back. And it was a story about a mom and a dad. And they were talking about some shit with a baby, whatever. And um, mm-hmm. I heard a voice in my head say, would you like to know about your father, little one? And I was like, all right, mm-hmm. that's creepy. Tell me more. So uh, <clears throat> I went home and I banged out a story called The Things I Do for Love. And for some reason, I still don't understand where it came from. This word called named this word Garaga came out. And the oh. character in uh, The Things I Do for Love is told in first person. She um, she mentions the fact that that there's this Garaga thing that she worships, and the more you go through it, you you begin to understand that it's more than just that. And after that, I was like, "Wow, I need to write more of these stories because I really dig this." And I was like, "You know what? I need to go back to the beginning of time and figure out how all this worked." So I wrote Legends of Garaga and Demons of Garaga, which basically chronicle human beings coming in contact with Nephilim. Um, Nephilim is an ancient term that's in the Bible, I think, once. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. But it's 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 in Mesopotamian lore long before that. Basically, what these are are the children of gods. Right. Uh, demigods is what I guess the Greeks would have called them. But um, in my universe, there's a little bit of a different shift on that. But anyway, uh, the Garaga tales, the, the two books that are out there, take place between... Prehistory and the burning, the first burning of the Library of Alexandria. And basically, uh, one book is from the human's point of view, and the other book is from the from the uh, daemon's point of view. Three stories from the daemon's point of view, an entire uh, lineage. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, but the Garaga thing is, I guess, the best way to describe it is it's kind of like my my version of Cthulhu uh, to a certain degree. Only it's very interested in getting access to this uh, to this planet or this world. This dimension. This plane of existence. This plane, there you go, this plane of existence. And uh, its children are essentially succubi and incubi. Huh. So it plans to get here by having people have lots of sex? Uh, I refuse to answer that question on the grounds <laughs> that it may make people go by the book, yes. 
<laughs> there, there are some very, very erotic elements to uh, to the Garaga stories, and that's very purposefully done. Um, so, it's I mean, it's a rip off of some things, but I, I, I kind of I, I was just trying to come up with a different way, and and the way the things mm-hmm. I do for love went off, I was like, oh, okay, so we're not a sexual vampire per se; we're something else. We're a sexual conduit. Oh. Okay, I'm cool with okay. this. So that's where that's where things went, and the the books did not sell well. But I have never gotten a bad comment about them, and there are people who are just absolutely rabid about them. And and whenever I drop a, a reference to Garaga in any of my other stuff, they completely freak out and start asking questions. <laughs> and I know that when Gare's Inferno comes out, just from what some of the beta readers have said, that 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 particular cadre of my audience is going to lose their shit. It'll be fun. Right. It'll be fun. So yeah, th- those those are stories, and the the plan is that um, I'm going to write uh, Garaga stories to take place during the First Crusade. I'm going to write uh, Garaga stories to take place during the Spanish Inquisition, during the French Revolution, mm-hmm. and uh, um, things that here happen in the Old West. Right. So I'm, now, what makes a Garaga story a Garaga story? Like, is there some special element besides the fact that you know Garaga gets name dropped and there's like sexy demons? Sometimes Garaga doesn't ever really get dropped. It's, um, I guess, what it comes down to is it's more on the lines of I'm either looking at it from the humans' point of view, have no idea what the hell's going on, or they're trying to figure out what's going on. The probably the best story of the whole bunch is called scrolls and there's no real horror in it at all but it is about a scribe who in in at the library of alexandria who is discovering all these things that should not exist all these tablets and everything else and they're that those tablets are actually referenced in an earlier story and he starts to put things together and then realizes there's a conspiracy at the library to do something with them, uh, something bad. So, uh, but, but it's all about him finding that out. And he never comes across any of, the, of Garaga's children. He never comes across Garaga itself. But there is that, right. that tension of it where he's learning about what happened in the past. So it's it it just kind of depends on on where it is. Most most of the Garaga tales will either have a uh, a hunter or one of the children. Okay. Most of them, not all of them. Most of them. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> so you, that's how it usually ties in. Okay. Interesting. Mm. Now, do you podcast most of these books? Like, are you reading almost all these books on the air? Oh boy, um, I have podcast. Let's see, the only book that I did not read, and I read portions of it, was Demons of Garaga, because um, I originally put out the, all the Garaga's tale as uh, tales as Garaga's ancient Garaga's children ancients, which was a hard, a uh, limited edition hardcover. So I did the the audio book for that, but since then we had um, I had for uh, Veronica Jaguer do the reading for Demons of Garaga and I had John Miro redo closet treats. So those are actually up for sale on Audible. I pod I can't even remember if I podcast the Demons of Garaga. I podcasted so many books. Oh my God. 
Um, oh. Yeah, I, I did the original Closet Treats. I did Tattoo. I did all my short stories. I did uh, the Black series, Derelict, mm-hmm. which is which I'm hopefully wrapping up uh, portions of it anyway. Right. Um, and uh, I will I will be podcasting. Well, I will be recording Gare's Inferno, and that's going to be a, uh, a podcast exclusively available for my Patreon patrons. Mm, okay, good plan. Huh. No, but do you think that having a podcast and doing the readings there, what has that really done for your writing career? How has that actually helped you build an audience? Well, back when I started, I mean, I've been doing this for, good God, eight eight or nine years now. Mm. I've been, been doing it a long time. The scary part is I'm, I'm you know, Sigler's been doing it for 12 or 13. Yes, yes, he and has. He did stubborn old fart, and I think T. Morris is probably 15 <laughs> or 16 years. Anyway... Yep. Regardless, back in the day, back before Twitter mm-hmm. sucked, back when, you know, social media, there was no book for your face and there wasn't all that crap. We right. we we basically just kind of started talking with other writers. And I was like, I hadn't written in a long time. My wife was like, you know, there's this Scott Sigler guy. You should check him out. So I, I listened to podcasts for about a year. And then she was like, uh, when are you going to start doing this? I was like, what? When are you going to start writing again? Figure out what you, what gear you need and let's put it together. Oh, oh right. shit. Okay, fine. So then I started doing that. I dug out some old short stories, fixed them up, and put them out there. And my mm. audience went from 20 to 100 for about mm, a good eight months. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then uh, Tattoo broke through because I created a really badass promo for it, and it brought a lot of people mm. in. And they mm-hmm. stuck around. They spread the word, and more people kind of kind of follow me around on that stuff. And and uh, you know, I ended up on a lot of different podcasts with a lot of other um, uh, fiction podcasters who were who were really starting out. Sigler, I think, called us mm-hmm. the third wave. Um, you know, folks like Jake Bible, um, Scott Roche, John Miro. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all these different folks from writing all these different things, and we just. It was just incestuous, the way we traded fans back and forth. It was insane because somebody would be like, you know, I'm listening to John Miro, Paulie Cooley, and Jake Bible this week. It was like, you know, score. So the the, the podcast stuff (laughs) brings people in, and uh, uh, or can anyway. And and since I switched over to also doing YouTube um, for Mm -hmm. for a couple of my books, uh, the Black Books specifically right now, that has also brought some people in. Right. And hopefully those people end up buying books or they become Patreon patrons or whatever else. And it still works quite well. But I would not have – I would not be where I am today if I had not started the podcast. Right. But uh, on an opposite note, though, would you advise a, someone who was thinking about podcasting their books or stories of that today to do the same thing you did? Ooh. Because it's not the same world it was when you started out, not at no, all. No, it's not the same world, and yet, you know, you look at uh, the Black Tapes, uh, Welcome to Night Vale, and some of these other podcasts that are pretty True. popular right now, and I still think that there is a very fertile market for that. I mean, Pseudopod has still got, you know, ten or 20,000, maybe more listeners a week. Um, you know, mm-hmm. same thing True. with Escape Pod and et cetera. I think it just mm-hmm. depends on what your goals are. If you want to get your stuff right. out there and put it in such a way that folks are going to give it a try, it's a lot easier mm. to do it as a podcast, my thinking, than it is to put a, a goddamn ebook up on Kindle for free. Because you just get lost, completely lost in all the flotsam and jetsam that's out there. 
That's true. So I think it's actually easier if you if you uh, you know do some some uh, engagement with other writers who are doing the podcasting scene. Go listen to the podcasts that are out there. See what they're doing that works. See what's not working, and then try and make it your own. Try and you know I've got mm. I had my own shtick, which was the Fiend Master thing, and I pretty much abandoned that. Although everybody still calls me it. But it was right. a shtick that I grew out of, and my audience, probably some of them still miss it. And I'll bring it back mm-hmm. every now and then just because. But, uh, you know, that's that's pretty much um, – I've changed that. I mean, the tagline for mm-hmm. shadowpublications.com is we don't believe in happy endings. Um, right. And I've since changed that because I was writing the science fiction stuff to where uh, some mysteries shouldn't be solved. And mm-hmm. I think that's actually a more commercially viable thing, but I like it too. Yeah. But yeah. just because the mysteries shouldn't be solved doesn't mean there's going to be a happy ending. <laughs> so it kind of goes along together. Okay. <laughs> there's there's still an ominous tone to it. It's just not quite as bad as me telling you, yeah, all these people you love are going to kill them all. Um, yeah, yeah, they're all screwed. Yeah, they're all screwed. So, yeah, everybody's like, uh, you know, what's the body count going to be in this book? Well, you just have to wait and see. <laughs> I mean, I have a site. Wow. I have a part of my site called the Graveyard, and I don't know how many names are on there now. It's all folks oh. who have who donated to Shadow Publications or were early, you know, original fiendlings, as my fans call themselves. Um, and I put them in there, and then people were basically begging me to kill them in a book. <laughs> I am not shitting you. It is scary. No, I believe. Um, and and yeah. there's probably there's got to be at least fifty names on there now. Of folks that I've mm-hmm. I've uh, dealt with in some manner, they've either become a <laughs> right. they've either become a character. Um, uh, they're either been a character, a corpse, or mm-hmm. a red shirt. Right. So, um, in fact, there's there's one. The running gag is uh, Thomas Reed, who's who's died in or been a corpse in nearly every one of my books because <laughs> he pissed me off once. So, right. um, it, 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 it's just, he's, he was probably my, my first, uh, Sigler supporter and really helped me get, get me on the map, which is why I don't mind putting him in every book. But the, the, the joke is he complained that he died before, um, he, he's mentioned in, in tattoo and he died before the story started. So after that he was toe tag treed. So whenever <laughs> right. there's a morgue scene or anything like that, there's always a TR read there somewhere. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the fans that know that have been with my work long enough, they're always looking through the book waiting for the for the tree to show up. So right. it's just little little things like that that you do. And that's all part of building the community. And people find out about the graveyard. Mm-hmm. They go in there and they look and they're like, holy shit. You know, these are all people that have talked to Paul at one point and he's killed every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, Paul's a serial killer. <laughs> so you know, it, it's just you, you find these little ways to kind of kind of build your audience and community mm. and and try and make it so that uh, it, it's fun. You know, you can write right. the serious books and still have a really good time, poke fun at yourself. Um, you know, Jake Bible, we're, we we call each other our nemesis, and and uh, we're really great friends. But man, we kick the shit out of each other in social media <laughs> on a regular basis. Mm. Um, right. and it, it's just one of those things. And I'm sure there are some listeners and readers of mine and, and some of his that don't understand that we're, you know, just bashing each other for the hell of it. <laughs> right. They think there's some kind of real blood feud going on and it's not, it's just all <laughs> part of, you know, building up the community and, and, uh, um, having a good time. And I think that, that, uh, writers mm-hmm. sometimes and artists in general can take themselves too seriously 
And I think that's right. that's when you make a lot of mistakes. I I I don't want to take myself seriously. I want to have a good time. I want the folks that read my books to to have a good time. Uh, some of them like to be scared. Mm. Some of them like to go ew, and you know there are others who are just like wow, that was really fucked up. You know, I want to give yeah. them the, those experiences, and those are the people that read my books. And so, just find <laughs> ways to to reach out to them. But yeah, without the podcast, man, none of this would have happened. None of it. Hmm. Right. Right. Well, did the podcast also lead to you being on the Dead Robot Society as well? Yes, it did, actually. Um, uh, God, I can't even remember his name now. Um, shit, that's so bad. Uh, one of the one of the co-hosts uh, listened to, I think it was Mama? I think it was Mama. One of the first first mm-hmm. ones I put up there. And he wanted, he wanted to get me on there to talk about horror. And, uh, you know, Terry Mixon liked me immediately. We have no idea why. Right. And so did Justin. So when he mm-hmm. left the show, they got Eliana in, on there. And by yep. then they'd had me on a few more episodes. And then when Eliana left, uh, they, they mm-hmm. invited me to come on the show full time. Right. Yeah, I've been listening for years. and I don't even remember who that original th- other guy was. I'm, I don't even remember his name. Oh, so oh, bad. Boy. He was the drummer, and I can't remember his freaking name. It's terrible. But man, and he was there for like a good like fifty, sixty episodes. Yeah, he was there it's for he was good. there for quite a while. I it's so hard to keep track of DRS because it's been around over ten years now. Yeah, you you guys just did episode four hundred something. So yes, four hundred and sixty five is the one that dropped today. Wow, wow, yeah. Uh, that's a long running yeah, show. Yeah, I've been on there since, uh, good Lord, what, 200-something, uh, I think? Huh. Yeah, about that. Yeah. And so doesn't it – isn't it hard to constantly come up with new topics for a show like that? It is and it's not. I mean, just one of the reasons Justin kind of called it quits for a while is he's just like, we're recycling the same old bullshit. And mm. I can see how he burns out on that. The, But Terry and I kind of – we when – we took the show in kind of a different way. We we wanted to talk about little things and just let it go into a conversation instead of picking apart one topic and see where it goes, kind of like what we're doing here. And right, and I yeah. think actually those are the most fun and the best shows and, and sometimes some really important uh, thoughts come out of that, some really important conclusions. And I think that's why a lot of writers, well, the writers that we have in our audience – that, I think that's why they listen to us. It's not just because we're complete jackasses, although that's probably a big part of it. Mm. But the you right. know the fact is is that we're both working writers. We're both uh, uh, making money and, and able to do it full time. Uh, of course, mm. now I, I have a part time gig on top of it. Don't even get me started on that one. But uh, you know the we've we've had we've had success. We've had success. So we we feel like we can talk about. Some of the things that uh, newer writers should be aware of, and even even things that we are are learning as we go through the craft. It's not like we know everything. In fact, we 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 like right. to say we don't know anything, and uh, <laughs> we don't realize what we know until we start talking about what we don't know, which is when it, when it's really fun. So yeah. it's just a matter of you know take something you know like a conversation on verisimilitude. It's all this common sense stuff, but when you really start digging into it, you realize that there are some things you can do and some things you can't do. And it's just simple conversations like that. And since we started approaching it that way, I look forward to doing that show every week because I never know what Terry's going to say. I never know what I'm going to say. (laughs) 
I never know when some new, when Terry will just toss out some comment and immediately I get a story idea from it because he's a son of a bitch. Mm. Um, yeah. I hate him so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's why he and I do the unexpurgated version on Patreon where it's like two hours long, uh, no edits or anything. That's what the patrons get. Uh, whereas the show is like watered down like 50 minutes to an hour for the regular podcast feed. But it, it's, it's right. just so much fun to do that. And we don't run out of things to talk about if we do it that way. Hmm. Okay, I can I can kind of see that. It's a little bit like that for Don and I here as well. Hmm. Uh, whereas, yeah, we, we pick topics and then we just kind of riff on them and we just see what happens. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can uh, start talking about horror and end up in ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. I think we, we. I don't think we've actually talked about horror for the last like fifteen, twenty minutes at least. No, that's um, because you, that, that's because that, you said, Paul, tell me about yourself. Two, three hours later, exactly. And well, okay, okay. And that's since we are still talking about horror. But anyway, um, touche. Um, um, but okay. But actually, we should hear about. It. Okay, so your best-selling horror book then is The Black, right? Yes. If you're going to go by horror, yes. Um, Blood, okay. The Black is definitely the so, bestseller. Okay, so, and you've done, what, two Black sequels, or is it like three? There's uh, three books in the series right now. Okay, three books in the series right now, because I've heard you mention on the show there might be another one Oh, eventually. no, there's definitely going to be at least two more. There may be more than that, but Evolution, I've got, I don't know, 30,000 words on. I just need to go back and finish it after I finish Derelict. Right, <laughs> right. Okay, so let's hear about The Black, then. Tell our, you know, give us our, our audience the pitch so they want to go out and buy it. Um, the black is, here's my elevator pitch. John Carpenter's the thing meets the blob meets alien on an exploratory oil rig in 30,000 feet of water. Huh? Okay. Okay. That's yeah. Okay. That'll do it. (laughs) Um, although, you know, that reminds me, I I mean, I'm not accusing you of ripping off anything, although Uh, obviously you have your various Oh, absolutely, I ripped off. I ripped off as much as I could. (laughs) What are you talking about? Because there was, I remember back in the 80s, there's actually a, there was a, it basically amounted to Alien, but it was on a set on an oil rig. I'm trying to remember what the damn thing was called. Oh, it wasn't the Invader Within or something like that, where they they bring up something and then like it's mutating the people on the oil rig. I'm not talking Deep Star Six. This was an actual above sea <clears throat> oil rig, and there's like a scene where one guy walks in and the things like and there's like this little fairy type thing flying around in the room. Do either of you know what I'm talking about? I I do, but I don't remember what it was called. It sounds familiar, but I I'm missing a lot of details. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Let me see if I can find it. It's. I think it's called like the the invader <clears throat> within or enemy within or something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. I, th- I think that's it. Enemy within. Um, yeah. The invader with. Is it is it invader within? I'm just quickly checking. There's also a Korean one that's out there as well that somebody after I wrote the black sent me a link to it because they were absolutely positive I'd I'd seen the movie, which mm-hmm. I had not. Oh huh. right. Do you watch much like Asian horror films? Um, I do occasionally. I I uh, I actually watched. Um, I read Ringu before I saw it, um, right. which is the the one the Ring is based on, the American version. Um, I read that first because uh, uh, Suzuki is a is a really good writer, and the guy who does translations is really fantastic as well. Um, right. So that and the Grudge, um, uh, Jingu, 
Th- those are right. just whoa. If you go watch the original Japanese versions, holy shit! So th- there's yeah, some there's yeah. some really good stuff in there. The Korean cinema is uh, the Koreans make some really really good horror movies, and so do the uh, so yeah, do the do. Thai. Um, they, yeah. They've just got some really creepy stuff out there, and they've also got some really ridiculous ones out there. Um, but the Koreans are really fucked up. Like the Japanese stuff is weird, but the Korean stuff is like fucked up. I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Have you seen Tokyo Police? Holy crap! No. You know that. Yeah. Okay. There is. Yeah. That, but that's that's just bizarre. When the, when the, okay. That's when the okay, giant penis okay, yeah, turns okay, into fuck. this creature, and uh, just wow. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> I wish I was oh, kidding, Japan. but I'm not. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, you're not. I, I remember. By the way, just a quick pause. It's actually called The Intruder. Within. Oh, Intruder. Within. It came out in, in 1981. The tagline is, when the oil brings death, the rig is doomed. The crew of members of a secluded oil rig near Antarctica face extinction when a deep sea parasite infests the platform, lays its eggs, and spawns its offspring. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So that that's it. It's And I remember it's being, it's, it's, it's effectively, it's basically alien. It's basically just aliens set, on, oil a, rig, set yeah. on an oil rig for the most gotcha. part. Gotcha. Yeah, the black is altogether um, different than that. There are no similarities whatsoever. Okay, yes, yes, of course not. None of the slides. No, 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 not at all. all. The, the, the crew of uh, the of Leaguer, which is an exploratory vessel, it, it, exploratory oil, oil rig, sets off to uh, d- uh, dig in a new trench, drill in a new trench called M2, and... and uh, what they bring up is not oil. Oh. It looks <laughs> yeah. like oil. It pretends to be oil, but it ain't oil. Hmm. It ain't oil, which it's the black. It's the black. Yeah. And uh, the whole idea was to come up with something that couldn't be necessarily categorized. And, and to have a bunch of scientists right. running around going, what in the fuck is that? Is so much mm. fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because you, you get this chance to say, if I'm going to create a really weird creature... The easiest way to do it is to have it break all the laws of physics and chemistry and biology as we understand it, because it right, creeps yeah. you. The f- it just creeps you out because it, it doesn't make yeah. any damn sense. So yeah. basically, a lot of the science uh, uh, research I did on that was figuring out how to make something that they could see that and test it, and it would look like the greatest oil on the planet, and then right. have it not act like it at all. So it was it was right. just a lot of fun to do those kinds of things, and the black is the black was a lot of fun to write. It was a lot of fun to write, mm-hmm. and that's really what you know put my career. On. It, it basically was the skyrocket. It was the moment. Right, huh. right. Wow. Okay. No, that's and that's why you've done two sequels so far, and there'll be two more. And I assume that they sell fairly well. Uh, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. And- um, okay, and then now relics. Is that you doing like the space opera thing? Oh, derelict. Yeah, derelict. Sorry, derelict yeah. is um, <laughs> basically it's like five hundred years of the future. Uh, humankind mm-hmm. is is running out of resources, and so they get together and they put together this massive ship to go out and look for new resources. Seven mm-hmm. years into its mission, it disappears. Never heard from again. Until right. it comes spinning back into the outer Kuiper belt. Right. Dead. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And they send uh, a Marine Corps search and rescue vessel to go see what happened. And hilarity right. ensues. Of course. <laughs> yes. It always does. Yeah. So okay. if you're if you're like a big fan of Dead Space and, and things like that, it will probably really, really uh, suck you in. 
But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hopefully, hopefully I'll have it. I won't finish it in this book um, in destruction, but I think I'll get it done in one more book. So there's two of those out so, right now. Okay. And those, so there'll be four books in total. Probably. probably but then there's going to be oh christ there's going to be at least one that takes place after the derelict saga is done and i've got four more set at least four more set for that universe i just don't know if they'll be severed press books or not mm, okay so most of your stuff's coming out through severed press then those books are yes yeah, scares inferno is a shadow publications.com gig okay so I'm, I'm a hybrid author i do both independent and and traditional publishing Hmm. Very cool. So, Don, did you have any questions? I, 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 you're mostly sitting there quietly in the background. <laughs> just, hmm. Listen to all the different books. I think you've, uh, you've kind of illustrated one of the, uh, I guess, difficulties that somebody who wants to be a, a writer nowadays has is that you can't just be a writer anymore. Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess you can if you get like with a big company, you get, you get like a press agent. No, but, no, even then, even, even then, the world, the world has changed so much back when, when I was, uh, when I was trying to get published in the nineties, uh, early nineties, mid nineties, it was, you had to get an agent, mm-hmm. then you had to go get a publisher and they paid you in advance. If you were a mid you're probably between five and $10,000 upon uh, um, start of the book and the end of the book, whatever. And then you would see no royalties whatsoever because right. you, you had to earn out against that advance. In a way, they'd set it up. You could never earn out that advance. But if that book sold like crazy, then they would pay you more for the next book, for the next book, for the next book, for the next book, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But it was still a crapshoot because you were relying on the publisher to do all the right things to make sure the book would go. And you were powerless mm-hmm. to do anything about it. There was no way for you to promote it. There was no way, especially if you were broke, there was no way for you to do anything to promote anything. It did, the, right. the tools just mm-hmm. were not there. So flash forward, you know, 20 years where we are now, it is a completely different ball game. Now the publishers are relying on the authors to do the PR for the most part. Now right. the publishers, the yeah. big publishers, especially if you're a mid-lister, you will be lucky if you get $2,500 as an advance oh. and still see no fucking, fucking royalties. And they will take all your audiobook rights. They will take all your movie rights. They will take all this and everything else and leave you with nothing. Wow. Yep. Which is why I am with the small press where I have a lot of clout and uh, I got a really, really good uh, royalty deal and I kept all the audio rights. Hmm. So I make in any, and that's another reason why I do my own audio books is it's basically pure profit. Mm. Wow. And when you sell, you know, 5,000 of them in two years, you know, that's a, a good rate of return. Yeah, that is. So what percentage do you get off the audio books on Audible? Oh God. You don't have to tell they me that. They screw price, us. The- oh, they screw <laughs> us so bad. If you go exclusive with them, they give you a whopping 40%. If you don't go exclusive with them, you get a whopping 25%. Ooh. So they they as far as I'm concerned they take way too goddamn much money for what they actually do for you. But mm. I've discovered since I I did the black exclusive and I did derelict non-exclusive is I lost my ass on derelict money wise. Oh. <laughs> so it's it's derelict is probably the last series I will do non-exclusive with them for now until somebody disrupts the market. 
Mm. Right, which is probably not going to happen because I believe isn't Audible actually owned by uh, it's it's Amazon? owned by the gorilla, yes, it's owned by the gorilla. <laughs> so when we talk about market disruption, um, you know we're, we're down to the big five. There used to be like ten or twelve big publishers, and then the massive consolidations happen, and now we're down to to five of them that right. that own mm. like a thousand billion imprints. You know, each one of them does, and so you know, fuck one, fuck everybody. That's that's basically their attitude. Right, yeah. Just as they are in deep shit, Amazon has reaped the rewards of putting them of, of them not evolving and them not changing their business model and everything else. Amazon is going to have the same problem because they're doing some really stupid shit right now. And when the mm-hmm. content creators start fleeing because they're not getting the money they were used to, Amazon's going to have a problem. They're going to have a real problem because there will be another market disruption. Guarantee it. The whole reason Amazon got up the way it was is because writers could go there and make a mint without having a publisher, yeah, without yeah. having an agent. When you were talking about the old heady days. If you knew what you were doing, knew how to game the system and et cetera, then you could be mm-hmm. a Hugh Howey or a Com- Comrath or somebody like that and, and – you know, make a hell of a lot of money doing it. And, and that's not to say there yeah. aren't good writers. It's simply the fact that when they got in and how they got in, they hit everything perfectly. And they had good business savvy and they knew how to market. If you're able to do that, you can actually make this work for you. Mm. But you can't just sit back and say, I'm just going to be a writer. I'm just going to write the words. No, it does not work that way. If you get if you get a contract with a big five, they're going to want you to do a lot of the promotional stuff. They're going to want you to do this, that, and the other. They're going to demand that you have a social media account, right? Mm. You know, it's it's stuff like that. They're going to demand you have a website, and guess what? They're not going to pay for it. So, yep. You know, it, you can kind of draw your own conclusions from that. There's there's just so many things that you have to do. You have to go on podcasts like this one. Um, you have to go mm-hmm. on uh, any time. You have to go to these cons and be on panels and talk yourself up and talk about other works and 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 get people interested in you. And you know, you go to a con, you pick up two readers. That doesn't sound like a whole lot, but if they if you've got uh, twenty books and they buy every book in your back catalog, now you're talking you know money. So mm-hmm. it's it's one of these situations where there's a lot of different things you have to do to make it work. You can't just sit back and say, um, I write, I click the button, and it's done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to you got to get out there because of course the big publishers they have a advertising budget but that budget all goes to their top Yeah, earners, which right? is the one thing that doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. Why does Stephen King need PR? <laughs> what why he does why does yeah. why does Nora Roberts need PR? You know who needs PR? The 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 mid-lister who's barely who's who's working a dead-end job and writing till 3 in the morning and you know, for, for eking out a $2,000 income from his writing per year. That's the person mm-hmm. who needs the freaking PR, not Stephen King, not Nora Roberts, not Dean Koontz, not any of those folks. And it used to yep. be that they didn't get all the PR, that the yeah. bu- that, that mm-hmm. budget was actually spent on the mid-listers trying to elevate them. But that was back before we had an editor carousel where an editor would mm-hmm. find a young author, an unknown author, and basically polish them up into a diamond because that was part of the job. Now, if you right, go with right. a big five company, you might go through through three editors before your book is published. Hmm. Mm. Now, yeah. do you think that's partly because there's, uh, as just as a new author has more access to an audience to the internet, the companies have more access to new authors, so they start seeing them as disposable? 
I think it's a. I, I think that they did. They did get to the point <clears throat> of disposability, but the, that that started happening long before Amazon was even around. That started happening when all these companies started consolidating. Hmm. You know, the, and you see it right when Walmart starts buying up everybody. Suddenly, their employees and they become expendable. You can fill anybody in mm-hmm. there; it no longer matters. Yeah. Um, and Amazon is, and Google and et cetera are getting big enough where that is going to start being a problem for them. But the publishing companies just went whole hog. They tried to run it like a Wall Street deal where basically it's like uh, give give people as little money as you can get away with and bank the profit. It wasn't yeah. about yeah. making sure that you had a product and the author is the product. Don't kid yourself that you had a product that was going to be long lived. Mm-hmm. It was what can you do for me to make my bottom line bigger in this three month time span? And when we, and, when, and, and you know, America is a, has a lot of, a lot of fault at, at per, you know, per, perpetuating that. But bottom line is if you work for enough large companies, you see it, they don't give a shit about long term growth. All they're concerned about is making that, that quarter's numbers. Because that's what gets the executives the most. Exactly. Yeah. And therefore, yes, everybody is disposable. The people who do the actual work in the oil fields are the ones who get fired or, or get laid off, not mm-hmm. the fuckers sitting up in their offices. Mm-hmm. It's not the way it works, mm-hmm. unfortunately, when they're the ones who need to go. So it's, it's yep. I mean, it's just the same kind of thing. And we've seen it with uh, with films, too. You also see this mess where a lot of projects don't get greenlit because – Folks are worried that it's not going to make enough money or there's office politics mm-hmm. or anything else. And so they yeah. won't even give it a shot. And then you see them spend $180 billion on this piece of shit because it's got Brad Pitt in it. Mm. You know, it, it just $180 million, excuse me. What, but, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the whole problem with the, with the way this stuff is set up. And even the comic book industry has had that problem. So it, it, I'm hoping we break out of this. I'm hoping there's another market disruption and we can get back to doing what should be done, which is, you know, helping helping these younger artists and unknowns kind of rise up. The, the folks who are doing really great groundbreaking stuff, all they need is a freaking spotlight thrown on them for five minutes and they're going to be just blow everybody out of the water. That's right, that's right. where I would love to see our system go, where those folks are valued again for what they are. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Well, on that note, Paul, can you spotlight some? I mean, obviously, people should go and check out your work, of course. But are there any other like horror writers or other writers that you'd really like to spotlight that you'd like our audience to go check out as well? Uh, Phil Rossi, who wrote uh, the the groundbreaking, well, not groundbreaking, but it was a very successful podcast called Crescent, which is uh, science mm-hmm. fiction horror. Um, Scott Sigler, if you don't know who he is, he's written everything from body horror to uh, YA stuff. Uh, and he's he's uh, was a, he was a, a bit of a mentor to me early in the day, so I really love pu- pushing his stuff. Right. Plus, he's a great writer. Uh, Jake mm-hmm. Bible, who I mentioned earlier, um, yeah. If right. you've not read Zburbia, go read this book. Okay, it's it's about a um, a homeowners association during the zombie apocalypse. It is absolutely <laughs> insane. But uh, it, it is an awesome series of books. You'll really love the hell out of it. Um, Jake Jake just writes mm-hmm. all sorts of bizarre stuff. That's why he's my nemesis. That's right. why he's my nemesis. But uh, he's <laughs> right. another really good one. Scott Roche is starting to put out some some uh, 
some good stuff. I'm still waiting for him to get a uh, a full length novel out, Scott. But uh, you know, there there Ed Lorne is another one. Um, uh, Life after Dane is a fantastic book, which will scare the shit out of you. That's some good stuff there. Uh, okay. So there, those are a few. Those are a few. Right. So there are a few. There's, there are definitely some good up and coming and new horror writers that maybe aren't getting enough attention. And yes. Now they have been. Well, one one would hope that uh, I mean Sigler's been an NYT bestseller, so really shouldn't be given right. too much credit. But you know, Matt right. Wallace is another one who's who's one of those folks that if you know him, you love everything he's ever written. But if you don't know him, you wouldn't know that. Right. You know, same okay, thing with Burr so Laffer. People need to check him out. These are these are all folks that uh, you know were were uh, podcasters or in that wave. So I I know all these folks and are mm-hmm. really really good at what they do. Really good at what they do. Right. Well, they and they've been honing their craft for a while. Yes, mm-hmm. and just getting better with every book. I noticed you didn't add, like, Terry Mixon to that list. Is there any particular reason? Yeah, because the motherfucker is number 20 on the top science fiction writer. Screw him. He doesn't need any PR. <laughs> okay, there is that. Screw that there guy. That. Okay. Okay. Uh, Terry Mixon, my, my co-host on DRS, he he writes really good space opera. He he lives and breathes the stuff, and, and it's no wonder that he'd be a great writer at it. He just is. He's really mm, good yeah. at it. So go, go read his books, too. Just don't tell him yes. I said to read them. <laughs> okay, we, we definitely will. So we better bring this cl- show to a close. Uh, Don, was there anything else you want to ask before we finished up for today? Oh, no, there was uh, there was plenty there. You got a lot of uh, good ideas. And yeah, I was going through the uh, the website, going through some of the, the audiobooks that you got up there. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. I do recommend people check that out. Well, everything that he's talked about will be in the show notes, of course. So people should just, you know, come to obeythedna.com and check out our website. And uh, if you do, you'll find links to everything you need to know. And especially right at the top will be Paul Edward Cooley's Shadow Publication site. Mm. Yay! (laughs) So thank you very much, Paul, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It's been an awesome time. Well, thank you very much. This this was a lot of fun. Hopefully hopefully I didn't get too boring. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, not at all. This has been great. No, you, your skill as a uh, podcast host definitely shows. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and on that note, good night, everyone. Have a happy Halloween and Garaga bless. Garaga bless. <laughs> night, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!